Hello, darlings, and welcome to Oh So with me, your host, Yoko Oso, where I talk about a plethora of subjects that I care about, mostly in the realm of culture and occasionally dipping into popular culture. And today we're talking mostly about teen musicals. Um, it's kind of in that realm because I picked two subjects, The Mean Girls Closure on Broadway and One Night Only, which is a special which was a benefit for the Actress Fund. And then I'm doing a review of The Prom, the movie musical that just came out recently-ish on Netflix, based on when I'm recording this. So let's start with Mean Girls closing on Broadway. So after 29 previews and 804 regular shows, Mean Girls the Musical is ending its run at the August Wilson Theater. So <laughs> hint, hint, Alex Timbers. You know, if there's a second run of Beetlejuice. Alex Brightman said on... Uh, Seth Rudesky, I believe, that he'd be doing even the, the bus and truck non-equity version of Beetlejuice. So it's like, and they have hinted at a potential, you know, move now that they've been evicted from the Winter Garden to go on to another theater. So potentially that's in the line. I'm hoping it's my favorite show thus far that's not named Wicked. I know I'm so spooky. I'm a I'm a weirdo. That's weird, right? I'm into weird musicals. <laughs> Fuck the Music Man revival. I'm a weirdo. Um, so with Mean Girls, it's kind of sad because similar to Frozen, the musical, which also just closed, and I hint that there's another theater that's also closed on Broadway, um, because a lot of the cast members in Mean Girls and Frozen had just started in february march kind of period actually even beetlejuice because beetlejuice presley ryan took over for sophia and caruso in february and i was actually at her last show on february 19th random day yes to go to choose to go to see beetlejuice the musical did not know it'd be sophia and caruso's final performance but i think i talked about that a bit in my twitter and my tiktok before um so yeah it's kind of similar to that like in uh, Frozen, Ryan, and Sierra Renee had just started in the cast in February. And then Mean Girls, you have cast members like Olivia Kaufman, Chad Burris, and Sabrina Carpenter. Literally had a few performances under their belt right as the shutdown happened. Um, but then you have like original cast members like Carrie Butler, Ashley Park, and Taylor Lauderman, who left for their own respective projects, Carrie leaving for Beetlejuice the musical. <laughs> Somehow I managed to turn a segment about Mean Girls exclusively into being about my favorite show. Um, and Ashley Park, who left to film Amélie in Paris, um, as you're supposed to say it according to Netflix. And the show, thankfully, it re at least recouped its initial investment in 2020, they said. And it, they were doing well in ticket sales. I don't think it was up there, up there, but they were, you know, doing decently well. Although I would argue that it kind of does show a bit of a decline when you stunt cast the way they did. Now, I don't know if it's just on the behalf of the producers, because according to online consensus, it was really Kyle Seelig, the actor who plays Aaron Samuels on the Broadway version, basically taking a leave of absence for a week or two. Uh, probably like a vacation, more like. It's only a week. Um, and Cameron Dallas was cast on, and it, th those clips are out there. They're very well memed in the theater community about 
how bad and it's kind of schadenfreude at a certain point because it's not entirely the kid's fault like no one goes up on stage except for me to make themselves humiliated every single night especially eight shows a week like he did cameron dallas didn't do this to get humiliated it's just the fact that they probably cast him very quickly um they thought this is a big enough name to bring onto a broadway show it's a not a huge role in the show um there's still some vocal like you know vocal and like dance prowess needed to play the, the part and you know a bit of acting too because that's the other th- critique about cameron dallas's performance is like the acting was just not there oh god it, um and so it was kind of a show that needed money like they did have their big um moment on snl when tina fey did the whole sketch for them and <laughs> my gripe with the show is that it really really sounds like what tina fey thinks millennials talk like like that i like a good amount of the songs although i i did do a whole twitter thread about like the cringiest lyrics in mean girls because of just how poorly written they are like there's songs that just sound like they were like uh tina fey went to her husband uh, you know jeff richmond who wrote the music in the show just like hey honey um you know the show needs a closing song before tomorrow night he's like Got it. Don't you worry. I will have you a song by Curtains tomorrow. She's like, okay, great. You keep doing what you're doing. Have fun. It's like, that's how I feel about Icy Stars. And like, you know, the big finale song, you see like, okay, that's a cute finale. Then the rest of the, the lyrics just like verge on just like this weird teen lingo that mm, sounds like it was written by what a Gen Xer or uh, before thinks that Gen Z vernacular sounds like. It's extremely cringy, and at a certain point, it's like, I don't think teen musicals need to be that level of immature. Like, I get it's Mean Girls, and Mean Girls in 2005 was it's had its place in, in culture, but I think that she just does not think that highly of teenagers. Like, I just finished reading the Dear Evan Hansen book and um, did not illegally watch a Dear Evan Hansen bootleg online. But um, the way even that show handles, like, dialogue and teen drama seems so much more elevated and, like, they actually took input from, like, people my... Not my age. I'm 25 now. Um, (laughs) But of the younger generation, I guess, Gen Zers, like what they would actually sound like, even though the show was written, I believe in like 2017 before then it premiered in 2017. So probably like well before then, um, you know, they took what they had in mind. I guess it would be my generation. Yeah. Cause I was still like youngish in 27. No, I graduated college. Then I was not. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they took what Gen Z's kind of, mindset was at the time at least and took their feedback and you know it's a very much more mature teen drama it doesn't seem like it's pandering mean girls has a lot of just like weird pandering to the younger generation like there's a joke about like the woke seniors and like um what's what's his name damien makes a joke about like i loved your article on intersectional veganism and he's like see she thinks i'm a she sees right through me she knows i'm a moron and it's like oh god 
That sounds like a word cell that I probably will hear about living in fucking Brooklyn at the time. Um, so with the show, they are unfortunately closing on Broadway. However, the tour will still happen. And there is a Palm Beach date at the Kravis Center. I will probably see. So Mean Girls was the last show I saw before the shutdown, which is why I have so much to say about it. Basically, it was the last time I got to sit in a theater and not think about viruses <laughs> because I was very close to people. Although I think, when did I see Mean Girls? When did I see Mean Girls? I think it was around like late March. Nope, early March. Nothing happened in late March. It was around early March. Like COVID was like sort of a thing. And I was just like, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't. No, I wasn't. I think I was still living my life up until like the the whole shutdown thing happened. Uh, I, I still remember what I was doing before the shutdown. But and this was one of them. I was like sitting in the Broward Center Theater. I my sister is a um college student, so I got like those nice college student rush ticket seating, which is like me paying thirty bucks for seats that are like a few rows back that I'm pretty sure premium because they're premium seats. Someone paid was I think the people next to us, at least because they were much older, paid upwards of two hundred fifty dollars for plus fucking ticketmaster fees. Um and Honestly, I like the production. I'll probably talk about it a little more when I talk about One Night Only because they do mostly have the tour cast in One Night Only. Um, but yeah, it's they're also optioning a West End ver- production of it when theater comes back to London, unfortunately. Because of that second strain of COVID in the UK, a lot of shows just recently got shuttered. Um, six, um, everybody's talking about Jamie. The new version of Les Mis, which is supposed to have Carrie Hope Fletcher and Matt Lucas and a bunch of other really big, unfortunately just got um, shuttered for the time being. Um, And there's also apparently a film production that's supposed to be in process optioned by Paramount. And honestly, I have no real interest in it. Like, I've seen the show and I've seen the movie. And a show, a movie of the show, is nothing that, like, really adds anything to the movie. Like, bringing it back, um, Beetlejuice the Musical. With Beetlejuice the Musical, they change so much of the plot that really it's the template is the is Beetlejuice the 1988 movie. And then they, like, bring in their own version of the ending to it where it's like okay i can justify that as like a a separate entity that's how you do a ip musical and with mean girls it's just like it's exactly like word for word um mean girls the movie like because they throw in most of the in jokes they keep the same exact structure of the movie they do. They did take out some. I did notice they take out some jokes, like maybe some jokes that didn't age super well or just like didn't fit. Like they took out that joke that's where Karen says, "If you're from Africa, why are you white?" Like that was one. I don't know if it just did not age well or if it just like wasn't working in the context of the show. They could have said it. They could have incorporated it in some way. I think that it just was not PC enough for this show. Um. 
But yeah, but I don't really see this movie version going great super well. I mean, if it does well, I'll see it. If it if it changes my mind, like because I, I remember literally at the beginning of the show, they tell you, you know, like no cell phones or something or um, please um, don't record the show. It's all it was already a movie. It's like, oh, yeah, it was when when they say that at the beginning of the show, it just reminds me that this was already a movie. Why do I need a movie of a musical of a m- movie musical or no of a movie that was a musical that became is going to now become a movie musical? Who needs that? I mean, if it brings something to it, like, because the only real structural difference, and this is going to be kind of a spoiler, is the fact that the only thing they change is when she's in the spinal halo at the end of the, the movie, you know, when Regina George gets hit by the bus and she Katie's at the prom and like they're in like the bathroom talking shit and like Regina's like, I'm sorry, I was such a bitch to you. I know I shouldn't have been like there was the whole change of heart thing that. If they kept that in the movie, would have made a world of difference. Like, but I and they brought it back in the musical. I just don't see that as like, yes, let me bring a whole new movie entity just for that one scene to really change this narrative arc. I don't think it works that well, and I think that it's just going to. I mean, I know it works well. I just don't think it's going to justify it. You know, it doesn't justify it, and. I think with the wrong director, it could be kind of meh. The show, I came away from Mean Girls thinking, you know what? This is a very nice time at the theater. I hope I have more of these. <laughs> I didn't. Um, because, you know, it's a fun song and dance show. Like, there's a lot of really well choreographed moments. There's like, it's just super fun. It's, that's it to it, really. There's like, you're not coming here for uh for um andrew light Weber, no it's basically the andrew light Weber show you're not coming here for sondheim or something for anything like intellectually um you know bracing i mean they kind of do try and push the whole like social commentary on social media because it is a 2005 movie retroactively being placed for like a a 2019 ish show so it's like of course they're gonna have to like you know throw in the whole technology and phone subplot but then it just gets shoehorned in in such a weird way where like i think at the beginning of the show like katie's trying to tap on this girl's shoulder and she's like hi teens and then the girl responds to her says she's on her phone the ensemble girl's like unsubscribe it's like who says that like (laughs) i feel like jared and dear who says that (laughs) it's just such a, a such a bad joke and I don't know. That's that's like ah, I'm. I just remember sitting there in the theater thinking, that's that was written by Tina Fey. I feel Tina Fey's like grubby little like fingers typing that and thinking, Haha, that's a joke. Now we're going to talk about One and Only, which is a TV special that broadcasted on NBC um, for one night. But I think they've it's been... Oh, God, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Oh, that's my least favorite song out of the show. And it sucks because it is Ashley Park and Carrie Butler who sing it in the original. And it's like, man, I see why both of y'all left. Ah... Uh, Okay, so 
One Night Only is a broadcast of a bunch of different theater performances. Um, they raised three million fifty one thousand two hundred ninety seven dollars for Broadway Cares slash Equity Fights AIDS. And if you don't know that name, you might know them as the Red Bucket People at the end of every Broadway show or every like theater production, honestly, because they don't they sometimes have like little giveaways. Usually sometimes um, the cast members at the end of the show will like come out and say, we're doing a fundraiser for Equity Fights AIDS. I know that around the time of the sh- when I saw Mean Girls, they were doing that. So like. Um, the actress who played Karen Jonalyn, she came out and said, um, you know, there's Red Bucket people. The cast members will be out there if you want to donate whatever you can. Or we also have little give- little giveaways. So I got a signed poster um, of the entire tour cast of Mean Girls the Musical. And it's I keep it in a frame because it's not printed on very good paper. But you do have like Mariah Rose Faith, Adante. I believe that's Danny Wade up there. And it's just a, it's a cute little thing they do at the end of every um, Broadway show. And it goes to a good cause because especially now more than ever, like uh, we're thinking about it. Like the last time I saw a show was in March. All those people have had to go. It is now currently January, 2021. All these people have had to go without incomes since March. And it's really hard because it's not just the performers. It's the, you know, it's the ensemble, it's the tech people, it's the people in the lighting booth, it's all these different parts that make a show happen that are now just either having to find other means of work or just not been working. And they've certainly not worked in the theaters since March. And that's part of the thing with this show is that I think that it looks like in One Night Only that the, some of the, the costumes seemed extremely utilitarian. Like, like um, there was just, I think the theme was just like your evening black um, wear, you know, like when you're like in middle school and there's a choir concert and they, they know that not everyone owns a suit. So they're just like, you know what, just wear black. And like, and your parents just bring out your like black dress pants and your black dress shirt and your black dress shoes that you wore at your grandmother's funeral. It's that kind of outfit. Like it literally looks like a funeral, with all the 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 straight up dress down black. And I don't think there were stylists potentially because of COVID. You know, the thing is with stylists, they have to be very in contact with performers, and. Um, one of the shows featured at this was Mean Girls the Musical. Now, I noticed that it was not many of the people. Actually, it was maybe one person from the the Broadway version and some of the uh, the ensemble characters because it featured most like Danny Wade who played Katie, um, Adante who played Aaron, who are both extremely talented. Um, and then you have Mary Kate Morrissey. They're doing janice and it was yeah it was really no one from the mean girls on broadway and i was wondering like why you know wouldn't they want to give these people who are probably already on broadway like probably live adjacent to broadway this like feature for and it was hosted by tina fey i don't know i didn't bring this up first it was literally ho- this whole event is hosted by tina fey and mean girls is tina fey's baby like i don't know why she wouldn't give 
these performers are from Broadway, like that one last thing, because again, a lot of shows shuttered in March. So when they were doing this live TV event, I thought it'd be, oh, you know, that's a way for, you know, those actors who had been out of work since March, especially on Broadway to, you know, get some money and get some finances, get some, a little more exposure to help bring awareness to this cause because, and it just was like, oh, it's just the tour cast. And it's like, oh, that makes sense because the tour cast will still be touring. The Broadway cast is now out of a job. Like, uh, tentatively, they're saying summer 2021. At this rate, that's generous because of our vaccine distribution rate, just in general. Um, we may be looking at closer to fall if we're, like, lucky. And even if even if shows, like, they do them in theaters in 2021, like, in say, in summer, I don't know how much I'd risk it. I mean, if they had the right measures in place, but it's still an indoor space, so it's like it's kind of weird to me. I have not been in a like a condensed indoor space for long periods of time, like seeing a show length since March. So it's like I I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know if I'd be comfortable in that situation, but they will still be touring. They'll still come back to tour, and that tour of Mean Girls started in late twenty nineteen. Whereas the production of Mean Girls on Broadway opened on 2018 in the August Wilson Theater, where unfortunately when the shut when Broadway does come back, it will no longer be at anymore. So let me give a little brief summary of performances. So Mary Kate Morrissey is <laughs> was really overacting the hell out of the Janice part in I'd Rather Be Me because it's like it's usually a song where she does it. You know, there's a it's you know where she's like being uh, about to jump into the the crowd of girls and it's like this really triumphant part and literally the core the choreo for it is like you have all these little this like cast of girls which is literally just like half of it was guys in drag because <laughs> half the uh, they they just use the ensemble guys and put them in drag at that part um and they just like are lifting up janice the whole time and so because it's just mk and she can't do that you know touchy choreography because of covid um she's just like really projecting and really trying to sell that role as janice as a solo act which i mean i've done that as a solo act before and then i've seen other people do it very successfully before i'd rather be I mean, she's just really selling those vocals. And I do think it is cool they got the tour cast. And it's kind of sad. I wish they had got more of the Broadway cast involved. But honestly, the tour cast deserves so much praise. Like, Danny Wade brings, like, a good level of, like, awkwardness to to um, Katie. That I think that she, she brings a good level of awkwardness to the role. And she is a good, she's a spectacular vocalist. Dante is also very good, but I mean, if I had to rank them, I think he's he's my probably my top one, not just because I've seen him live. Um, and actually, Dante was also playing Aaron in the 
Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade version of that they did recently with Renee Rapp and the Broadway company of Mean Girls, which I thought was weird, but I think that, I mean, I think at also a certain point after Kyle Seelig took that that time off to get replaced by Cameron Dallas, I think he was like kind of done with the show. <laughs> I mean, Dante is thankfully a much better Aaron and performer than Cameron Dallas. Um, but yeah, I don't think any, I, it was just Renee. It was just Renee at that performance and along with the ensemble who was probably just in the area. Um, that's the other thing about like performers who are still in the New York area. It's like, what do you do in this point? Rent is not cheap in New York. And I don't know if there's a freeze. I think there is currently. It's like, what do you do? So another performance that I really thought was spectacular was Chicago. And it's such a standout as a solid classical Broadway musical. Like it's what you think of when you hear the word musical theater. And it opened at 1975 at the 46th Street Theater, now the Richard Rogers, which will, you know, kind of be like the new Majestic and just house Hamilton until it stops becoming profitable. I mean, I may talk about Hamilton in depth in a later in a later podcast because I have I have I have comments about Hamilton and it's very conflicting because I think I like some of the songs. I have triggering moments of like doing in the Heights. So Lin-Manuel Miranda's isms kind of like, you know, get to me, (laughs) but, and there's the, I do have a problem with the show as a conceit in general. Um, but I think that like, you know, how majestic has lived at the, our fandom has lived at the majestic for like decades now. Um, it's kind of got that timelessness. I'm wondering if Hamilton will have that timelessness just because like, you know, it's already, it's only like what 20, like the film's version was in 2020. And like the, like watching that back was like, wow, (laughs) these are very 2016 jokes. It's like you know, the the social commentary is already aged a little. And there's also aging in like you know the, the the music of it. It's like and I because it's it's rap and rap is a much newer art form. It will age faster just because of the nature of it. Um, it's not like <clears throat> not like folk or something. It has that timelessness factor to it. Um. But with Chicago, it's it's just such a... That's also another show that I think will just literally never leave Broadway. I don't know if it is still on Broadway. I could be wrong. I just... Uh, nothing's updated on my <laughs> on my today ticks because nothing's fucking happening. Um, and it was Candor and Ebb who produced this musical who are also known for Cabaret and the film version of Cabaret. But I think it was really a shining moment for Bob Fosse's choreo. So the thing is, I've never seen Chicago. I've seen Chicago, the film. And I watched a director's cut where they talked about how, um, where it was Rob Marshall talking about the way he had Catherine Zeta-Jones and um, Renee Zellweger perform their parts. And they were just more like brash and like they were... It's kind of the reverse of a Fosse thing when you think about it, because Fosse is more about like subtle, like, you know, minute movements that are very accurate and precise. But there's also got little like, you know, 
zhish to them. It's like Rob Marshall or whoever he had choreographed it was just like loud in your face, like really exaggerated more movements than like the the nuance of a Fosse performance. And I don't think it was a detriment. I think it honestly helped like bridge that um into the film realm because that's the thing about translating stage to screen adaptations is just like you can like you can have something like the dance of a Fosse dance be there but if it doesn't translate on screen it doesn't translate on screen and it's very very minute his movements are very there's a, a precision to them that I think may be a little lost in a in a movie version it's kind of like cats how like they totally misread how to do the dance sequences um even though cats is fundamentally a dance show it's there's so much going on with the dance movements and they just fucked up how to film that because of the terrifying cat faces and also just like the camera angles and i'll talk about that a bit more in my next review and i honestly think that when broadway does come back i really want to see that show i think that that's a show that depending on who they stunt cast i mean speaking of fucking stunt casting cameron dallas i i was talking to my friend who was like yeah the first time i saw chicago the girl playing roxy hart was lisa rinna and harry hamblin her her husband a real housewife and harry hamblin are playing roxy hart and um a richard gears character uh mr billy flynn in the press conference rag like <laughs> they they do when i do talk about the problem they do make a joke about that but it's yeah it, that's a show that's like it has staying power partially because of stunt casting and but i don't think this cast really had any like you know crossover stars but it was still a solid performance like the the oh they did all that jazz in such a a clean way like i love the clean lines in a fossey performance and that's like that's worth the ticket for me already, and uh, they had um, the actress playing Mama Morton there, doing um, "When You're Good to Mama." Really, those are the two. Those are the two like big songs that don't involve like multiple people. Like, I mean, yeah, they did. She did have an ensemble and all that jazz, but this is not like cell block tango, which requires like six people on stage at this um six people in close proximity to each other at the same time oh god i'm just remembering that fucking rent song like they did a performance of seasons of love because i think the rent like i read it as like the finale tour like they're never never touring again um, so they were supposed to do one last big tour this year, didn't happen. So it's probably going to happen whenever, whenever Broadway comes back and will I see it? I'll see if I'm feeling drunk enough. I might, I'm not a huge rent fan and that may just because of my associations with the, the show. Um, the people I know that like friend and, <laughs> um, that, that Seasons of Love song gives me fucking PTSD to a really traumatic event in my life where I was being harassed in public while the song Seasons of Love was playing. So I'm just like, I have bad associations with this song. 
I'm not going to listen to it because I don't have to. But it's so it's catchy. It's catchy and it's cute. And it was it's kind of the OG of that, like 11 o'clock kind of number that has crossover appeal. I'll talk about I'm definitely talking about that. I'm talking about the prom. Um, there's also that jagged little pill musical, which it was written by Diablo Cody and opened in late 2019 at Broadhurst. So it's kind of like, you know, how there was that American Idiot musical that, like, responded to, like, Bush-era criticisms, but premiered in, like, the, I think in, like, yeah, 2015 or something. So premiered recently, and then, like, Jagged Little Pills, like, responding to, like, it's, like, it's extremely Gen X. Like, it's one flannel shirt away from, like, being, like, the most Gen X-y thing on Broadway. And... It's produced by Diablo Cody, who did Juno and Whip It, two of my favorite films. Um, But there's such an energy about it that's, like, somewhere between really annoying theater kid and just, like, pretentious first-year art student. Like, it literally reminds me of when I was in college and I made, like, um, my, like, my big teen coming-of-age movie for a, a campus movie festival and it it feels very much like that where it's like but it's also written by someone with a little more perspective than me at the time because i was writing a a teen movie like coming of age movie when i still had plenty of coming of age to do myself at the age of 19 so it it reminded me a lot of that energy cuz the love today that we made was an aim to make it enough for you to be And we're back. I've had my water and my tea. Let's go. So I'm going to start with the song of the week, which is Reason to Believe by two of my absolute favorite singer-songwriters, Courtney Barnett and Vagabond. Now, I know Courtney Barnett has had, you know, a pretty big while now. She's toured massive places and had so many records with, like, uh, Kurt Vile and so many interesting collabs over the past years. This is one of my probably one of my favorite collabs of hers because Vagabond is a kind of a smaller artist. Like literally the last place I saw Vagabond was in Art Basel 2019, 2018, a year or two ago. And (laughs) when live performances can still happen and Art Basel was a thing. Um, Vagabond is the project of Letitia Tomko, um, who's kind of been around the New York scene for a good amount of years, really super talented she just dropped a new album recently that's a little more on the synth poppy kind of side a little bit of folk because she did start her project as like a a band uh indie folk kind of project and her voice blends with courtney barnett's so well that's the thing like even when it's a voice that you don't think can that like goes well with courtney barnett like kurt vile who's got this southern twang to his voice, and Courtney Barnett, who sounds Australian. It's like, no matter who, they work just so well. And I don't. I think she can't not collaborate with anyone. She could, she could collaborate with Weird Al Yankovic, and it could be a, a, still a brilliant piece of art. And Reason to Believe is a very classic kind of folk song. Um, I'm more familiar with the Carpenters version, only because... I have the soul of an 82-year-old man inside of me. Straight face while I cry. 
Okay, let's get into my review of The Prom. Now, The Prom, as a musical itself, actually started on Broadway. It opened in late 2018 at the Long Acre Theater after 23 previews and only 309 performances. It closed in late 2019, and the production, which cost $13.5 million, did not recoup its initial investment. So there is still a tour going to be happening eventually. I'll probably see it when it comes to Bird Center. I'm kind of interested in it. I don't know if they've announced the tour cast yet. They probably have, and I just haven't looked it up. Um, but it just looks like a very fun time at the theater. Kind of like my Mean Girls critique. Like, I'm not going to see the prom for like any kind of, you know, big mental or emotional thing. Uh, mostly because I'm not a teenager anymore, and I'm you know a little more. I've got a little more <laughs> years behind me. And I think that just teen musicals in general, maybe I'm too cynically cra- looking at teen music. Well, then again, I you just look at Dear Evan Hansen and shows like that. There are shows that know how to do like the, the teen thing very well. Legally Blonde does the teen thing very well by not like, you know, just pandering to teens. Is Legally Blonde a teen musical? I just know it's like a, a, a upbeat, like teeny bopper musical. Teens usually do like Legally Blonde the musical. What's the only reason I can call it a, a teen musical, even though it's literally about for going to fucking college. You are a teen in college for a year or two, I guess. Uh, I'm sounding, I'm showing my age the more and more I talk. Uh, you can really tell I'm like about to turn 26. Um, and. The first time I remember ever seeing anything about the prom was at the 2019 Tony Awards. And going back to the musical you know I'm going to talk about, Beetlejuice the musical also made its Tony's debut that year. And right before the prom went on, I the Beetlejuice segment was on, and it was like, I knew the original you know, movie of Beetlejuice, and I was like, I just am a unapologetic stand for the aesthetic of a Tim Burton movie. So it's like, I saw it, I loved it, and I was like, I, and then I managed to go see it. <laughs> like, it was that kind of thing where, like, I'll go pay $80 for good seats. And that's the thing, Beetlejuice, it really, like, even though it was a midweek show, and I still got like really good like orchestra seats for under a hundred bucks a seat, unheard of in Broadway, by the way, um, especially for a show that that was probably at the peak of its like you know popularity because it had done the Tonys and it had that resurgence on TikTok. Um, really, like they knew that their audience was like younger people who aren't gonna pay you know like producers' prices to go see it. Like, they're going to pay, like, you know, they have, like, their little bit of birthday money to go spend in a Broadway musical, and they did. And the sh- that's why the show was able to rake in so much money. And unfortunately, for the prom, it just did not have that length going for it. And honestly, so when I saw the prom on the Tonys, it just, se- like, Beetlejuice was, like, everything I wanted out of a Broadway musical, and the prom was everything I thought of when I saw a Broadway musical. Because before then, I had only been in my college production. I had gone to um, my friends' like high school productions. And before that, I'd really just seen, like, you know, 
my expectation is a show like Wicked, like I, like that's the one of my favorite ones I've seen on Broadway. Um, Finding Neverland I had also seen, but I wasn't like crazy impressed with it. Even as a little kid, I saw Beauty and the Beast, and Beauty and the Beast, the musical. I live in Florida, so I it was so used to going to the Disney theme parks by then. I could not tell you the difference even back then between the Broadway Beauty and the Beast and like the MGM Studios version of Beauty and the Beast because those were the same show. So like I had no real point of reference, but I just knew the problem was like everything I thought of when I thought of a Broadway musical, like really smarmy and just like, you know, there's fun songs and dance, but it's like nothing really to that interests me. Even as a performer, it's like it's just nothing particularly interesting and i just so i try to come into the movie with a little clearer of a mindset thinking that you know what maybe i mean i've never seen this show i unfortunately never got to see it because it closed so soon um maybe the movie recontextualizes the musical in a way where i'm just like it's more accessible you know i've i've had that with some shows like um I'm not going to say Cats. <laughs> it, not the Cats movie, but Cats 1998. Like, really recontextualized the show for me in a way. Because um, I've never been able to see the show. Um, um, what's another show? Like, what's another movie musical? Oh, Reefer Madness is a very good movie musical. If you ever have the chance to see it, it's Kristen Bell fucking <laughs> smoking weed and playing a dominatrix going from this little like Mary Sunshine character to a dominatrix in the end it's a really good movie and, uh, Christian Campbell, Nev Campbell's brother is in it um, oh, Alan motherfucking Cumming is in it I would give my life to Alan Cumming I just adore him and he's really good in Me for Madness that's another, that's a show that had a stage show but the movie recontextualizes it and makes it much stronger so, with the prom, let's see, uh, the cast. So, first off, you have, at the core of it, it's these two girls. One is Emma and Alyssa. Emma is, like, this underachiever lesbian character. I don't know what you really call it. You really call her that. She's just, she's never seemed striking in the same way compared to Alyssa. So, Alyssa is um, this super overachiever character whose mother is projecting her insecurities at her because her father left them. And so um, Emma is played by Joe Ellen Pellman, who is a newcomer, um, never been in anything before. And it's really odd to me that they didn't at least bring anyone on from the Broadway show. Like, um, who was... Oh, yeah. Caitlin Kinnunen. I can never remember her name because it's a hard name for me to say. Caitlin Kinnunen, who's... <laughs> Her version of um, Emma just looks like Sierra Burgess, which is like, this could have really been that vehicle for, um, uh, what's Sierra Burgess' real name? Um, what's Barb's real name? Oh my god. Um, Shannon Purser. For Shannon Purser, to, if she could like figure out how to sing and dance, this would have really been Shannon Purser's vehicle. They have already probably locked her in the Netflix building anyway, along with Andrew Rannells, who makes his appearance here. Um... But there's actually an audition, like a leaked audition footage of Madeline Pesh, who is from Riverdale as Cheryl Blossom. And yeah, Riverdale is trash garbage. It is total CW, run-of-the-mill trash garbage. 
But on the it's like an Instagram video, she gives a really solid performance, and it's at that big climax in the show that leads into Act Two, where it's like she's realized that she's been fucked over by the prom committee and they had a separate prom without her. Oh yeah. Spoilers for the prom. Um, probably should have said at the beginning. Um, but yeah. And Joe Ellen Pellman does such a kind of, she, her performance. I wasn't, I I wasn't, I just, I wasn't feeling it. Like I'm, I'm, like there's the joke on TikTok about her like being like hate crimed while she's just stoically singing note to self, don't be gay in Indiana, like <laughs> like what the fuck? I I expect a little bit of like, you know, have you ever been hate crimed for being gay in school? <laughs> it's not that fun and I don't think you sing through it. I mean, it's not to say like, oh, it's a musical, but it's like, I don't think she's giving me a delivery that says, yes, I'm getting hate crimed for like wanting to, you know, fucking be with my girlfriend. Um, and I just, I just wanted more, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I want more of this performance and I know she's playing it subtle and it, she is very new on, um, unfortunately I kind of think of this as same way as cats like you can have all these talented you know newcomers but really they're kind of kind of suffer because this is their first vehicle and i mean pretty much it's just like you know again uh ah <laughs> oh, god damn uh, I, uh james corden it's literally just like Cats. James Corden and all these big name actors are just going to go home and keep getting cast and shit. But like for these smaller performers who are super talented, like I don't doubt Joe Ellen Pellman can do better because honestly, a good actor is as only as good as the director is like the worst director. And this is um, uh, Ryan Murphy. And you know what? As bad shit as Ryan Murphy can be, I kind of wanted, like, you know, that ridiculous Sarah Paulson ugly crying at that part where she's like, oh, fuck, they had a whole separate problem without me. And then it kind of just looks like they're getting her Starbucks order wrong. Like, that's the that's the reaction I was getting out of it. And I know, like, you know, stage to screen, it's always just like, you know, you want to make the timing smoother. You want to make, like, the... um the actions are going from like, you know, acting out to the big crowd in the cheap seats to like, you know, acting in front of the camera, which is a whole night and day expectation. Um, but I think that it's kind of similar to the problem with like the producers where they just did not know how to translate it that well. And honestly, that comes from Ryan Murphy. I think that Ryan Murphy needs to stop touching musicals. It's it's like Tom Hooper. So Tom Hooper and Ryan Murphy stopped touching musicals 2K forever. Dude, nice. Note to self, people suck in Indiana. Leave today. Oh, and just for fun, here's my top five actors who could have played Barry Allen better than James Corden. Number five, Kevin Chamberlain, who, yes, I know is already in the movie. But I think that he could have played Barry Allen better than James Corden. 
I mean, you don't have to be gay to like play a gay character because that's such old discourse that I feel like shouldn't be rehashed. But like Kevin Chamberlain seems like I could call him a feguette and I could believe it. You tell me that James Corden is a feguette and he makes like regular casual gay jokes and I feel like I'm being hate crimed. I feel like I feel myself becoming homophobic watching James Corden play a gay man. Um, number four, Gray Henson. Now, he's a bit younger, but I do think that with the right angle... I mean, they did age down um, Andrew Reynolds' character um, from his... His actor is also much older. I think they definitely could have aged it down for Gray Henson. Um, Josh Gad... Entirely contradicting the last thing I said, but I think that Josh Gad could play a gay man with a level of respect and perse- and um, just a level of respect better than James Corden. I'm so tired of people thinking that James Corden is charming. He's just posh and British. Like, he's not endearing, and he gets really obnoxious. Like, it's not... He's... How do I say this? I'm trying to think of like what characters, gay characters Josh Gad has played. I mean, he played LeFou so subtly that you couldn't even tell he was gay until two scenes that they could easily cut out for the Chinese market in Beauty and the Beast. Um, number two, Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane is gay. Nathan Lane is a good actor. I think those two things make him far more qualified to play him than James Corden. I kind of miss the discourse when it was like, Oh, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. Oh, that's all you need to make a successful Broadway musical. It's like, those are the two you would suncast because they both had crossover appeal. And at points it worked. Like, I mean, it it got that they got those meat into the seats to the point where the producers was the their run of the producers was so expensive. They probably recouped their I think they recouped their investment in like under a year. And it's like the <laughs> We could, we could give Nathan Lane more roles. Let's not be afraid to. I hope Nathan Lane's agent, whoever you're, whoever you are, is like getting him these roles because I think that giving this to James Corden is a mistake, and we have to stop. He already ruined, um, he already ruined, um, Into the Woods, and he already ruined fucking Cats as, uh, Bustopher Jones. It, it. How do you reduce such a it's not like, you know, it's cats. It's not like it's a nuanced character or anything, but Bustopher Jones is like a pastiche of like upper class British gentry who are just so gluttonous and like wealthy, but he's eating garbage. And that's the joke of it. And James Corden reduces it down to like these like stupid fat jokes and just like really bad one liners. It's like, it's not funny. It's not endearing. It's just bad. Oh, and my number one actor who could have played Barry Allen better than James Corden is Titus Burgess. I would have loved this movie more if Titus was Barry Allen. I think Titus had, I mean, clearly from Kimmy Schmidt and his, you know, roles on Broadway, you can see he has the acting chops. He has the dancing chops. He has the vocal chops, especially. Oh my God, Titus Burgess singing is an experience, and I mean that's the kind of the joke in Kimmy Schmidt is that he's never he's like this, you know, uh, untalented actor or something. But like in real life, this man has been on Broadway for years, 
And I think that he could have played Baryon way better just because he brings that level of panache and like sassiness to the role that James Corden just doesn't have. I don't know what these casting directors were thinking. Like, I don't find J- like James Corden just isn't like sassy or like has that like, you know, level of like je ne sais quoi that like anyone else, especially Titus, could have had to play Barry Allen. I think that Barry Allen in the stage show is this flamboyant figure. And I mean, my friend uh, did bring up that, you know, we, uh, my friend who's a, who's a film person, not like a musical person was like, you know, we should bring back that, you know, stereotypical flamboyant gay man character that's been littered throughout the media. And I know nothing of the sort. I'm just a beautiful woman. I've never been a flamboyant gay man in my life. Um, but I think that, you know, it's kind of just in response to these very maudlin kind of um, LGBT cinema movies you have. Like, I mean, Moonlight is one of my favorites. Absolutely. Um, but uh, Brokeback Mountain was kind of like the, the like usher in of that era into the mainstream of like these maudlin LGBT movies. Um, but yeah, I don't think James Corden could... Clearly not. He can't play. He, it's not that he can't play gay. He can't play endearing or likable, and I think that's the one thing Barry Allen fundamentally has to be on top of being a good singer, actor, and dancer, is he has to be likable. And I just did not find his Barry Allen likable. I think any of the five people I mentioned could play a likable character better than James Corden. And that kind of ties into, like, the humor of the show. I mean, in general, the script. I know this show is very much just an adaptation of the stage script to a movie format. And these are very, like, Trump-era jokes. Like, it's very, like, Gen X after-school special version of Trump-era jokes and just, like, the way they approach, like, social issues. Because, I mean... The last time that a story like this was relevant was years and years ago. Like, do I think that this is an issue? Probably. I don't doubt that this could be a civil rights issue, but like in this, in with everything going on in the world, I mean, even before the shutdown, there's so much more poignant things you could do with like an LGBT storyline that have been done better. Like, honestly, that the, there's stories that like this that have just been done better about LGBT oppression in schools. And this whole conceit, it's just very flashy. And I think that there's, it's a, it's like a Pop-Tart, you know? It's serviceable, it's sweet, but fundamentally, it's not like, it, it's, it, it's, it's thin, with like a, a a center of gooey sweetness. I think that there's just no real room for nuance in this show. And I get it's a musical, but there's still just no nuance here. Like everyone is either like really a, a, a monster, like there's like Sundays, like, like a Saturday morning cartoon monsters or just like, um, some sweet innocent person just caught them. it's like there's no room for like you know people who maybe harbor these homophobic views because 
of their background and what they've been taught. And I mean, in a small way, there is, I guess you can argue that with the teenagers there is, but at the same time, it's just like, there's no one really nuanced in this that like beyond like, you know, your upbringing or like, um, out of fear. I think they do tackle those, but they do it in just such a ham-fisted way that feels like they're not really trying to give anyone the actual benefit of the doubt. It's sort of just like, you have to change your opinion because here's all the... Oh, God. And they do it through <laughs> in song form. They it, Like, uh, how did you just cure homophobia through elaborate musical numbers? I, I, I feel like even... I know it's a, a musical, but I feel like that's just like... That conceit doesn't work, especially the way Andrew Randall's do it, which, by the way, is it me or is Andrew Randall's getting typecast now? Like, between this, Big Mouth, and, like, Book of Mormon, it's Andrew Randall's just, like, the the the, quir- the quirky religious boy that's also a flaming homosexual. Like, can't... <laughs> Are there any other roles out there for Andrew Randall's? Let me know. I mean, I did like it. So he was pretty good in um, Boys in the Band. I haven't talked about that yet. I might talk about that in a future one because I do like. I did like that as a show. Um, I think it, uh, his role in Boys in the Band really was a a way for me to see outside of you know this kind of typecasting. Like this is a this is an age down role because the actor who actually played Trent in the musical was much much older. Um, but they aged him down for the movie and. I think that, yeah, this is, like, very Andrew Reynolds type of a part. Um, also in the cast, you have Ariana DeBose, who plays Alyssa Green, and her mother, played by Carrie Washington. And Ariana DeBose is actually in Hamilton in the pro shot in 2020 on Disney+. Plus. Uh, she had a much smaller role in it but in the ensemble, but I think she nails it super well. Um, I have a minimal amount of notes on her character, but... Honestly, it's kind of my pl- my point about like you know the uh, the smaller name actors and actresses are gonna kind of suffer from a a milk toast movie or a milk toast role that's just like not really offering them that much. And I mean, it, it is giving her exposure. It is one of her biggest prominent roles to date. It's just like I think that it's not gonna be like you know what makes her a household name. Oddly enough, and I this is like in when I was researching this, they said like Ariana Grande was supposed to play Alyssa Green at first, but because of the Sweetener tour, she had to cancel. Uh, she had to be recast, but Ariana DeBose, and it's like, can you imagine the fucking minds of like the 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 Arianators and like Ariana stands if they saw her making out with this little frumpy lesbian girl? on screen it's i think the fan base would implode that that would be too much and clearly it was too much for the world to ever realistically perceive you'll have bible camp each summer to keep you pure and clean endless rules apply when you're Alyssa green now i had a very big complaint on my instagram story about the set design and it was mostly because where they show the theater in that opening scene is not what Broadway looks like. It looks like it looks like someone tried to draw Broadway for memory who had like 
only been dropped in the middle of 44th Street once, thanks to that Broadway looks like, because none of the avenues or theaters line up. You literally have like theaters that are on West 44th or on 44th Street next to theaters on 35th and Broadway, like a whole nine block difference. And it's like, also you have like things like Wicked at the, um, at not the Gershwin, which is so weird to me. Like Wicked's always been at the Gershwin. I'm pretty sure it'll be at the Gershwin until I die. Um, and <laughs> the set designer actually responded on TikTok and he was like, yeah, it's supposed to be about the idea of Broadway. And it's like, I get that. And it's also the fact that they couldn't like license, you know, certain properties to do, to be at certain theaters. So, um, they couldn't license hair, um, I, uh, at one of the theaters. So they couldn't use the promotional material for that. They could license Les Mis though and Wicked and, uh, Phantom cause they're older shows. I think just hair hasn't been around. Oh, they've been around, but they just haven't like, they have probably a hold on that copyright cause it is a very risque show. Um, and also certain theaters, I guess, couldn't be portrayed. Like they definitely could not show the Richard Rogers. I think they, they'd have to pay a pretty hefty penny to Lin-Manuel Miranda's investors to use Hamilton branding anywhere. And another criticism I have of this show is just the fact that it has such an eclectic score because it almost feels like a jukebox musical with the different styles of musical theater they're trying to go for. You know, you have those like fossey kind of like old ja- old Broadway standard jazz tunes. You have the Stephen Schwartz kind of Godspell songs, which are those upbeat dramatic songs. You have um, Candor and Ebb. Um, wait, no, that's Chicago. Um, you have these references to these like big other Broadway shows and it's just like they're the show really is about the dance like not just the dance the prom but (laughs) the the dancing in the show is kind of what makes it from what I've seen online of it it's just like the choreography is so interesting and it's like so eye-catching and the way Ryan Murphy shoots a dance sequence is so infuriating like picture this you're sitting in a broadway theater and on stage you're just seeing the dancers in front of you or if you're like on the upper mezzanine or something if you're poor you're seeing like um you know the dancers from above you're not really seeing like some random little angle or a close-up or anything because every show they have to act towards the cheap seats and so when ryan murphy just chooses to do these like really awkward close-ups it just takes me out of it because it's like it, it's like this doesn't feel like how you know how to to film a dance sequence like there's a reason why like old broadway musicals like the chicago's and like the the movie musicals really that really are remembered and do well like do well is because they know how to shoot a dance sequence, especially when it's a dance show. That's kind of the problem with, like, Cats, is the fact that that creepy fucking CGI faces and the randomly sped-up tap dancing just would take you out of it. It doesn't feel like... And it's a dance show. Cats, fundamentally, is a dance show. Um, And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of when um in... 
American Horror Story Asylum when uh, Sister Jude is like, do you remember your name? And <laughs> like Sister Jude just goes into this like whole um, coma doing the name game, Judy. It's like, it's that kind of thing where it's those like weird Dutch angle, like close-ups on the dancers that makes sense in a show like American Horror Story Asylum, you know, because it's through the viewpoint of this demented old woman. But when you're trying to see a show, uh, a musical uh, that just has these big elaborate dance numbers with this whole cast of dancers, you kind of want to see them. You kind of want to be taken in by the spectacle of the dance. You're not looking really at like, Keegan Michael Key interacting with um, DDL and played by Meryl Streep, which, oh God, uh, Keegan Michael Key, I don't doubt, can be a good singer. I've never really heard him sing except for like that Les Mis parody they did in Key and Peele. Um, but his vocal performance kind of reminds me of um, in Chicago, the movie, how John C. Riley has Mr. Cellophane. And in the show, Chicago, it's a very forgettable song, but I think that John C. Riley just does it in such a, a pitiful way that it's so endearing. Um, John C. Riley, Dr. Steve Brule can do no wrong. Um, but here it's like Keegan Michael Key's lack of vocal prowess is like just really shows through on that song. And it's like, oh, no. And even, oh, speaking of vocal performances, Meryl Streep. <laughs> Meryl Streep needs to stop. She's good in Mamma Mia. I'll concede to that. I like Meryl Streep in Mamma Mia. But I, and I have not seen Into the Woods yet. That is on my list. Because I want to, I may tear that apart next. But Meryl Streep oh, taking over a part that was originally Beth Leaves, who is a powerhouse vocalist, a, a, just a, a talented Broadway actress, just doing this role seems like such a disservice. Like, I know that this movie, this musical, didn't recoup its investment, so of course they're going to want a big-name Hollywood actor or actress to really cross over to get, you know, a little bit more bang for their buck out of this. But I think that Meryl Streep is just so... Especially here, her her lack of vocal talent just is showing through here. Like in Mamma Mia, I can forgive it because it's Mamma Mia, and she delivers those pop songs with such a, a tact that feels so likable. I think when it comes to this, it's just like her lack of vocal ability just shows through. Like in that song, um, in that song where she's like, how can you silence a woman known for her belt? And then she's like, her belt. And then it's just like the flattest like note. It reminds me of like in The Producers when they have Uma Thurman singing, now Ola belt. And then she like sings like the, the flattest note she can. It's like, oh, you really think you're trying with that note. I think that the, the character of Dee Dee Allen is supposed to be, especially from the wig you see on, show, on the show and in, the, in Beth Lee's character, is a Patti Lapone kind of pastiche of these old Broadway dames who are so out of touch that they don't know 
that they don't know what the fuck is going on that they are just like doing this purely for egotism and by the way it's someone pointed this out on tiktok like how could Dee Dee Allen not know that there was an a- what an Applebee's is? I remember going back to Beetlejuice. I remember going to the Winter Garden Theater, and literally around the corner is an Applebee's on Broadway. There is an Applebee's right there on Broadway, and all the whole queue of Beetlejuice fans just scared the fuck out of these poor tourists going to the Apples and Bees on Broadway. Oh, God. And that's kind of the thing with, like, the weird out-of-touchness. I think that if they wanted to make her sound way out-of-touch, they could have gone for more, like, really local-sounding references. Like, it's Indiana. There's got to be some dumb local chain you could have referenced. And, by the way, I have friends who are actually from the Midwest, and there's things that make sense. Like, that mall... That mall looks too nice to be like a a, a modern day Midwest mall. Even some malls in South Florida are like decrepit, and I can see why. Like, if the chain, if that store had like a like it's one last dying chain store, and the rest of the mall was like decrepit, save for an Auntie Anne's, I could believe that that's a mall in Indiana. Not like the pristine set version they had, probably in some Hollywood soundstage on that movie. And, oh, God. I mean, the parodies of the song pastiches of, like, Steven Schwartz and Candor and Ebb just make me think I could be watching a better show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, when you when when they make those references, like when she just the zazz, it's like I I'm literally singing like and all that jazz or Roxy Heart, like to make me think that I'm watching Chicago, which I can just pop in my DVD collector's copy of Chicago and watch that instead, because that's still more endearing than Nicole Kidman's approach to this. I mean, Nicole Kidman wasn't bad. But she wasn't good. I think her performance needed some zazz. Because <laughs> it wasn't memorable. Like, it's, it's not... I, in 10 years from now, you could ask me what my favorite movie musical performances were. And it'll probably... I will not be anywhere near thinking of Nicole Kidman in The Prom. I barely remembered she was there yet until I did research for this video. <laughs> oh, God. And it's just... Mm. they could have just cast some of the Broadway cast even so if, they could have literally involved anyone who was like working with the original uh, cast of this movie it's again like Cats where you have no one involved from the original cast and you stunt cast the whole thing because you have to make uh, you have to recoup your losses and all that and put your, this money into the production and it's like I think that you can just get good actors. Like, Ariana DeBose is not a big name. Ariana DeBose is not a household name the same way James Corden or Meryl Streep is. But she performs the fuck out of that role. And she really gave it her all. And it's so sad because it's this is not going to be what makes her. I think it might help bridge her. I don't doubt it could help her bridge into um, more film acting. But it's like, because she's a powerhouse like talent. It's just the fact that She's doing it against James Corden and Meryl Streep, like half-assing their way through this movie. 
If your hands are shaking, just turn them into jazz hands. Doesn't that feel better? So the costumes, I have to say, I was not all that impressed with in the original Broadway production. Like, they just reeked of, like, being uninspired and not just really, like, feeling like, is this a Broadway show or Fashion Nova? But then, of course, Ryan Murphy, who's known for really good costumes, like, or at least I think it's the same person he worked on with, like, Ratchet and, like, all these other series. So he has, like, historical references that really are make made those costumes so much more interesting, like, really interesting fabrics and design choices that develop each character far more. It especially developed the fact that Emma cannot dress. Emma is especially such a bad dresser. Um, <laughs> God. And uh, maybe she wouldn't be a hate crime so much if she learned to fucking dress herself. Um, but the thing with Ryan Murphy is like, he knows how to pull references to things to create a voice. And the thing with Ryan Murphy is, and my friend said this the best to me, that Ryan Murphy knows how to pull references, but he never has a way of making it his own individual voice. Like, the fact that I joke that, yeah, he made Glee and also American Horror Story, like, really reaffirms that there's no singular voice that I know, like, Ryan Murphy's directing style. You know what I mean? Like, you know a Wes... Like, in film, it's like, you know what a Wes Anderson is. You know what a... um a um david fincher is versus like theater where you know a sondheim from a a lloyd weber because all those directors have their own individual voices but with ryan murphy it's just like he knows how to pull these period costumes and that's really his you know forte but i think with this with the prom especially it kind of felt like he's been going in that glee route again which seeing what has happened to glee actors after glee is not reassuring (laughs) Like, what was that set like on Glee that so many of that young, incredibly young cast has just died and, like, you know, gone through much shittiness? Uh, it's it's kind of disturbing. It's the real American Horror Story is Glee, the Glee set. Um, no, the real American Horror Story in this is Meryl Streep rapping. Why did I... <laughs> need Meryl Streep rapping the only white girl that should be rapping is Debbie Harry in Rapture by Blondie and that's exclusively it and while we're talking about songs that song Unruly Heart is how I mentioned before with Seasons of Love it's that 11 o'clock number where it's supposed to really inspire courage and tie the ethos of the show together and it's kind of that trend, and I say this as an unapologetic wicked stan. Um, I'm kind of tired of it. Like, I know it's supposed to be a big crossover number where it has crossover pop appeal while also being a musical theater song, but this is literally just You Will Be Found from Dear Evan Hansen. Like, it even has that, like, that you know where it cuts to, like, internet commentators, like, wow, I never thought of that that way. Share and like this with everyone you know kind of thing that they do in You Will Be Found, which You Will Be Found is my least favorite song in Dear Evan Hansen. I know it is kind of supposed to be the ethos of the show, 
but I don't like you will be found. It, 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 it reads so much of like cheesy modern day milk toast musical theater. And it just feels, even in the context of the show, it just feels so uncouth. Like nothing really builds to this in a way that it feels satisfying. Like, okay, Emma's posting this thing online, but it's like, has she, what the whole point of the show is that she's dealing with this in person. Like every bully, every, all these theater actors are interacting with her in person it doesn't quite make narrative sense that all of a sudden she's going to get like, you know, the community and the intention from the internet. Have you been on the internet? Have you, have you been online? Do you see what those kids do to homosexuals on the internet? The, no high school bully is nearly as bad as posting yourself on the internet. Like <laughs> no one can insult you in your school or throw eggs at you nearly as hard as what people say about you on the internet and it 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 just doesn't feel like it builds anything because it's so it's like i it's kind of like she's getting control back of her life by posting this but like i don't think that's how this thing works in real life it feels like unless you really had control over it and, you know, just like, I don't know, selectively block comments from your page, it's not going to work that way. Um, I mean, I, the, th- the thing is you can find community, you know, outside of Indiana. Like the, I guess the conceit of it is supposed to be that like, yeah, she's finding her community um, outside of this hick town where she and the other girl, Alyssa are the only lesbos in town. Um, but then also it was the fact that, like, all of a sudden she knows how to play guitar. Like, I, are we in the 90s? Is this Lilith Fair where every, like, armpit-haired lesbian just knows how to play the acoustic guitar? Like, it seems, like, kind of tropey and um, not really developed since she never has been known to play guitar before this point in the show. Like, I think they were trying to build up, build up the fact that, you know, her parents had abandoned her and she has this like is- issues with like trust and loving people and it's just not built up to that point i think that overall the prom is like it's a decent movie i'm gonna be extremely separate on it if i had to like numerically rate it i'd give it like a five point five generously out of ten. Like it's not cats, but it's no um hairspray. It's just it is a movie musical that exists. And that's all I have to say about that. Thank you for watching and listening to my podcast. I've been Yoko Oso. This has been Oso and be nice to each other and not in that toxic positivity way.